And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple, or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. I've covered a lot of topics on this podcast, and whether it's the cynicism of individual movies, filmmakers, or looking at things in a historical context, uh, one of the things I thought I would would touch on is create almost like this sub-series, this very limited uh, sub-series on my own career and my experience growing up with cinema and not even realizing that I did. And most of all, when I finally became a professional filmmaker, uh, the goal to stay away from that. And for those of you that are out there right now working on your own projects, whether you're 15 or you're 35 or 55, and you're trying to break into this industry, obviously, as people will tell you all the time, and you're probably sick of hearing people tell you all the time, it's just not easy to get into this. So while my high school yearbook uh, statement for my senior year where, you know, you have like where it lists your nicknames and your goals and hopes for the future, uh, it says in my high school yearbook that I want to become a filmmaker and arrogantly enough, I want to be the next Steven Spielberg. I don't know why I said that other than the only excuse I have is I was 16 when I wrote it. I wanted to make movies since I was eight years old. I've always loved movies. I've talked about that many times, not only in interviews, but also as well uh, in previous podcasts. And movies were an escape for me uh, from a a pretty lousy early childhood. I mean, once once I started to hit around sixth grade, things got a whole lot better. But it was pretty rough going up until that point, and in which I made a movie about it, my first film, The Fields, uh, which I did not direct, and has certain elements of cinema all on its own. So I thought for this first episode of this sub-series, I'd go back and look at how I got involved in this and most of all, why. And I guess that's part of it too. For those of you that want to write, for those of you that are writing and you are making films or you want to make films, I'm going to ask you the very simple question and that is, why? Now with education, the standard answer, which has become pretty much a trope or cliche, is uh, when somebody is asked, why do you want to be a teacher? The, the first immediate answer is, well, to make a difference. And that sounds really good on the surface, but what do you mean to make a difference? Do you you mean to change the course of human history, uh, to to make things better? It's it's a very general term, and I I get it. It's a very positive term, and, and it's one of those things where you say, well, I don't know, how do you argue with that? What is it that you really want to do? I have to go back to when I was eight years old. I was uh, taken to see Jaws by my mother. Now, I was eight. By today's standards and outrage cancel culture standards, my mother should be arrested for doing such a feat. Uh, I I was not a Disney kid. When I grew up, I I didn't want to watch Herbie and I didn't want to watch the cartoons. I mean, I love Bugs Bunny, but I wasn't a Disney kid and I didn't get into it. And I I wasn't all that enchanted, I guess, with Disney. But I love scary movies. And that's because of my grandmother. My grandmother is, I'll tell you, one of the best things about my first film, The Fields, 
is Cloris Leachman and her portrayal of my grandmother Gladys. Because I'm telling you, when you watch that film, that's exactly how my grandmother was. And I, I've said numerous times, watching Cloris's performance in the fields is about the closest I'm ever going to get to having my grandmother alive again. Going to my grandmother's farm in the early 70s was, was a respite from some pretty unpleasant stuff. And one of the things my grandmother loved to do was watch scary movies. And I am not kidding. By the time I was seven, eight years old, I knew who Peter Lorre was and Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Vincent Price. I had watched all these films, especially the classic black and white Universal monster movies. And Saturday afternoons were Creature Double Features and Dr. Shock out of Philadelphia. And my grandmother would sit there, cigarette in hand, in her chair. And especially I loved the rainy afternoons when you couldn't go outside to play anyway because she had this really cool farm surrounded by cornfields. One of the greatest things was just to sit there and watch these movies with her. And she would tell me all kinds of things about the actors and what she knew and what she had read. And I always said my grandmother was kind of like the living internet before the internet was born because for someone that really never left her house and really had very little access to the outside world other than television and TV nightly news, my grandmother knew a lot of shit. And uh, she would just tell me all kinds of great stories about these actors and Karloff and Lugosi. And it was just fantastic and a lot of fun. I really started getting into watching scary films. And The Fields focuses on the fact that I was terrified of Charles Manson because, well, he was a real monster. And my grandmother would also narrate the nightly news, especially at the time uh, they had caught Manson, I believe, in 69, and I was only about two years old at that time. But by 73, 74, they had commuted uh, his life sentence, I'm sorry, his death sentence to a life sentence. And he and the girls were getting a lot of press. And so when he would show up on the news and then Helter Skelter was going into production, the film version of, of the best-selling book, monsters or horror had a whole different face. And if you watch the movie, The Fields, the face of that monster to me was Charles Manson. And then in 1975, Jaws was released and it was an advertising media blitz all over television. And it's probably hard for some present day people to understand with no internet. It was in the newspapers because you would open up the paper and there would be a movie section. And the theaters, whether they were the chains or local theaters, all put in display ads showing the artwork of the films. And I remember the shark coming up under that girl, that artwork. And then the advertising started on television and the commercials and the music. And I was hooked. I was fascinated. I needed to see this movie. My mother had read the book and she wanted to see the film. My mother wasn't really a horror person, but she did like a lot of the intense stuff. And I begged my mother, please take me to see this. Please take me to see this. And she relented. And we both went to East Stroudsburg to a place called the Grand Theater. And we stood in line and the line was long. And that was one of the first impressions for filmmaking to me. Because keep in mind, up until that point, I had seen a handful of movies in theaters, all of them child films, uh, Benji, uh, at that time, Charlotte's Web. I saw, I'm, I'm old enough to say that I saw the Hanna-Barbera original animated Charlotte's Web in movie theaters. 
I think the scariest thing I had seen in a movie theater at that time was one of those Sun Classic documentaries called Beyond and Back about life after death. I think that might be the scariest thing. I saw all my horror on television. So for me to approach a movie theater and to see a line stretching from the box office back and we had to stand in line just to get our tickets, that was a big impression on me. And it's like, wow, all these people are standing outside just to watch this movie. And then as you got closer, the poster was was in the uh, poster case and I just stood transfixed looking at this poster and that artwork. There was an element of magic for the very first time of seeing a movie like this in theaters. And there was probably that element too that I was all grown up. Jaws, if, if you don't know or don't remember, was rated PG back in the day. And there are some people that find that amazing to believe that, that really a movie like that with the severed leg floating to the bottom and, and stuff like that should and Quint's death uh, should have been an R. However, it was PG. So my mom, who had read the book, and America was caught up in Jaws mania, agreed to take me. And like I said, I, I just felt it was something incredible. And we got in the theater and I got my popcorn and sat next to my mom and I watched this movie play out. And it is the first time that I remember being so conscious in a movie theater of such an interactive audience. Uh, people screaming and shouting, yelling. And then at the end, standing up and applauding. That was the very first time I saw a feature film in theaters where the audience gave it a standing ovation and cheered it. And that's when I knew. I mean, I looked around that room and I knew this is what I want to do. I thought it was absolutely amazing that a movie can make all these strangers react in an almost unified way. And it made such an impression on me. And my mother said when we got out in the parking lot, she had asked me, you know, what did you think of the movie? And I told her I loved it. It was terrific. But then I told her, I want to do that. I want to make movies. My mom, being who she was, was like, okay. Well, if if that's what you think you want to do, probably thinking, ah, you know, the kid when he was in kindergarten wanted to be an archaeologist and dig up dinosaurs. And, uh, you know, now he wants to make movies. Okay. But I never shook it. It's what I always wanted to do. So what is it? Why did I want to do this? I can tell you this. It wasn't because... I thought I be, could become rich. Understand that Spielberg was just starting down the road to becoming a household name and Spielberg. He would dominate the 80s and I was like eight years old. Nobody really knew of Steven Spielberg at this time. So it wasn't for me like, oh, I want to be like Steven Spielberg. At that time, probably I wasn't even aware of the guy who directed it. All I knew was I wanted to make movies that would make people react the way that they did in that theater. So from there on out, I threw myself deeper into that industry. I watched everything I could on movies and making of movies because we had just got HBO. And they were showing as it was very brief supplemental stuff in between films they would show some very crude making of of the movies and you really didn't glean a lot out of them. And there weren't really many books on how to do it. 
there were no filmmaking books or your screenplay sucks or how to write a screenplay or nothing like that. And there certainly were no uh, internet subsidies in the way of YouTube or, or TikTok or, or any type of online tutorials or information. You were kind of on your own. But I did know this is what I wanted to do. So in asking me, what is it that you wanted to do as a filmmaker to achieve? I guess that's still it, folks. I just want to entertain people. There is nothing like watching a movie with a fresh new audience. And I'm telling you, I could watch Raiders of the Lost Ark for the 50th time as long as that audience is new and there were people that go, I have never seen this before. Because I feed off of that reaction. I love when I watch somebody else enjoying a movie. It is something that truly one of the few things in my life, I'm, I'm here to admit right now, it's one of the few things that truly gives me joy is watching the reaction of people enjoying a movie and reacting to it. I love it. Even though I may have seen that film 50 times, even though it may be my own movie, I love when people react and I can't wait for their feedback. And that could be negative or positive. It's always preferable if it's positive, but I just can't wait to hear about it. I guess before we go on with this, does it make a difference? I mean, Jaws made a difference. And I've, I've often said, being a former educator, making movies isn't really going to change anybody's life. Camp Dread will not alter the course of someone's life or future. Uh, you, you made a movie, you get some fans that say, hey, I loved it, you're a great filmmaker, whatever. That's all very nice and I appreciate it. I truly do. But in the end, it's just one more film that joins the dustbin of many, many other films. And even now you're starting to see it. Now that I've grown older, you've got people that have never seen Jaws or they don't even know who Steven Spielberg is. And being in the horror field, even more when you go to conventions or you talk with horror fans and some of them, they profess that they are horror experts and they don't even know that the original Halloween was in 1978. Like they don't know that. They, they just think that Rob Zombie's Halloween was the original one. It's just a reminder of your own mortality. And so I think another reason why I decided to go into film is because in some way, you're kind of immortal. I mean, that is why I think so many people take celebrity deaths so hard. And that is, they aren't supposed to die. They're always supposed to remain young forever. And they don't grow old. And, you know, when you see them and you, you, your mind has, look, for me, Harrison Ford is always Han Solo. He's always Indiana Jones. So when you see him in the latest Star Wars film with his gray hair and his drooping face, and you almost find it unacceptable. And the reason why we find it unacceptable is I'm even going to give the benefit of the doubt here that it's not so much that we are just so shallow and superficial that, that people just can't grow old. But the fact is that it's a reminder of how old we've become and that we too are growing old. Watching Harrison Ford in The Force Awakens or even in The Rise of Skywalker is an entirely different experience than munching on popcorn and seeing him on the screen in The Empire Strikes Back which I saw under entirely different circumstances 
under an entirely different age. When these celebrities grow old and they die, it's a marker for us to let us know that things do change and all things end. So I guess I stop here in the podcast to ask again, why do you want to make movies? What is it that you want to do? Why do you want to act? Why do you want to write? By the age of 10, I got my first film camera. It was a silent Super 8 Kodak camera. No sound, hence the word silent. And I got it because my uncle knew I wanted to make movies and my grandparents wanted to get me a movie camera and they were still quite expensive at that time. My uncle's story is that he was in a bar during a snowstorm and a trucker came in and I guess either he wasn't going to make his run or whatever, but he said, hey, I have some film cameras, you know, out in the back bed. Anybody want to buy them? They're going cheap. My uncle said he bought the camera for $5, a brand new Kodak Super 8. I never knew that story for years later. But when I opened that up on Christmas morning, I thought the heavens had opened and God had shined on me. I was going to start making movies. I didn't know what I was going to make. And most of all, it didn't have any sound. Here's the part where you're probably asking, what does this have to do with a cinema episode? You could have just made junk. You get a film camera. I understood now that I had to go out and buy cartridges of film. It didn't come in spools. You had to actually buy a cartridge of film. You inserted it into the back of the camera. And then you ran it. You pushed a button. It gave you a choice of regular speed uh, or fast motion. You didn't have slow motion at the time. So I could change the shutter speed and I could go fast motion or whatever. Now I had watched also growing up, in addition to horror, a lot of silent movies in the way of Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And I had recently at that time discovered Benny Hill. And I loved Benny Hill's movies. And I think the reason why is because much of the other Benny Hill humor, his skits, his singing, his uh, stage shows that were videotaped on his show, kind of went over my head for the age I was. What I did understand is, if you want to see some boobies or some cute girls in their underwear getting their dresses ripped off, Benny Hill was the place to go. And you would hear that Thames uh, sign-on, that broadcast, like NBC had ding, ding, ding. You had the Thames sign-on, which was dun, 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 dun. And you would see, uh, you know, the, the Thames logo come up from the Thames River and and all of that stuff. And, and you knew you were in for a good time. And I had watched and was still watching Benny Hill for what I used to call his fast flicks, which were slapstick, very lowbrow humor, uh, running around real fast and altered speed. And I thought, well, that just might be the place to start. Instead of just taking the camera and going out and filming uh, toy dinosaurs, trying to you know step on buildings, which I really wanted to make a Godzilla movie, and I thought of the idea of building a Godzilla suit, that just wasn't going to work. But I did want to make comedies, and most of all, I could put my friends in them. And I guess this is the part where, as I wind this episode down for the introductory sub-series episode, and that is, I was that kid in the neighborhood that got everybody else to do things. I'll give you an example. Like in the summer, everybody would kind of look to me and be like, well, what do you want to do? And if I would say, well, I want to do this, then everybody went, oh, okay, then, then we'll do this. And whether that was bike riding or fishing or going down to the creek and floating in inner tubes, it kind of all came back to me. I was almost like the event planner of my development, my neighborhood. 
And it was me who came up with the idea to build a fort up in the woods. And we, we took all this extra wood from houses that were being uh, built nearby and cleared lots out of the forest. And we built this gigantic, it looked like the Borg cube in the middle of the woods. It was probably a 10 by 10 square foot house, you know, shed kind of thing. I had a door that basically had a, a drawbridge kind of door where you had to pull it up. We, we didn't know how to make a hinged door kind of thing to open and close. And uh, you had to crawl through the bottom of it to get into the fort, which again inside was basically a big black box with no windows. And uh, it was my idea. I felt we should have a fort. We should have a hideaway. And I'm really glad we did it. In seventh grade, I was the kid who thought we have all this forest right next door to our house and we owned much of it. Why don't we have a haunted forest? And why don't we charge people money and give the money to the SPCA? And then we could donate that money for charity to help the animals. And son of a bitch, if we didn't do it. And we're, I want you to understand, this is like 1979. We raised over $150. That's a lot considering that you have this neighborhood haunted forest with a bunch of kids dressed up in really crappy costumes, hiding in the woods basically along a path that we cut with a lawnmower and hedge clippers uh, just to get some people to walk through. And I think we charged 50 cents or a dollar, but I know some people made donations and the entire neighborhood came out. They heard what we were doing and they did it. So now I was going to make movies and the catch is you need a cast. And so what was I going to do? And most of all, how do you get these kids to do all of this. The, the other downside is we didn't really have any hot chicks in the neighborhood to be the femme fatales or most of all what I was hoping is to get their dresses ripped off like Benny Hill. And I know all right now in this era you're thinking, oh, sexual harassment, me too. I was like 12, 13 and I was just emulating what I saw on TV and I was not a misogynist or anything like that. You had to come up with something. And we thought about it. At first, I made, I, I can show you uh, sometime. I posted them on Twitter. Uh, at first, I made some stupid skits with a friend of mine, my best friend at the time. And we pretended to cook a cat in the microwave. He was a chef and he was going to show how to do this. And we used special effects. And we, I used to edit. That was the thing. I learned how to edit at first in the camera because you only had so much film. And my mother was not going to pay for not just getting me raw film, but also developing that film. See, that was the other catch. Not only do you get the film, you got to process it. And there was a Ray and Derek in our mall, uh, which was like a CVS at the time. And uh, I used to walk to the mall or bicycle to the mall. Or if my mom had to go up to the mall, she would drop it off. But you had to get these packets and fill out these packets and send your film away. And I think the developing cost was somewhere between five, six bucks a roll. It was something like that or, or a package. But that was a lot of money. And the rolls themselves of raw film, the stock film, well, that costs money too. And my mother had the definite attitude of is, don't think I'm buying you this film. So I mowed lawns. I mowed a lot of lawns and I weeded and uh, I did landscaping. And I know it sounds like that, you know, I walked uphill, you know, in snow both ways, but I did. I took our lawnmower, I bought the gas for it because that was another thing. My mom was like, you think we're going to give you the gas to go mow other people's lawns? So I learned how to factor in cost. So to charge for a lawn, it was my labor plus the gas. 
And that was interesting. I learned that at the time. My stepfather taught me that little life lesson. But I did all of this to buy film stock and also to develop that film. Our props, well, they came from what we had. We made our movies with props that we borrowed from our own homes. If we needed a knife, we used a real knife. If we needed a gun, we had our toy guns that we pretended that were real guns. Uh, Costumes also came from our home. And I guess that's where I end this first podcast because at that time, I was drawing a comic strip called Spedwoman. And I'll explain what that is because by today's standards, it is a thousand percent politically incorrect. But back in the day in school, you had special education and the kids went to separate classrooms. They weren't mainstream or mixed. And again, I am telling this story from the standpoint of being a kid. I am not making fun of anyone nor berating or belittling anyone who participated in such classes. So there's my disclaimer, my my modern day disclaimer. However, we were kids. They labeled special education as S-P-E-D, SPED. Instantly kids would equate that with, well, these kids aren't too bright or not smart enough. And I applied SPED to a woman because on Benny Hill, he had Wondergran. And I think the actress's name was Janet Leaves. And Benny Hill played these villains and she dressed up as this old lady and she fought crime. And she was the answer to Wonder Woman or whatever. And and they were very, very funny skits. I think they only made two of those films. But I wanted my own Wondergran. That's what I wanted. And so I came up with Sped Woman. And that's where the character was born. And I started drawing uh, comic strips with a buddy of mine. Uh, His name was Joe Barnifer. And I started drawing comic strips of her in school. Most of them were still panel comic strips. And she was a woman who changed in a porta potty instead of Superman's phone booth. And she rode a skateboard. And quite frankly, folks, this had absolutely no meaning or center whatsoever. And it wasn't really all that funny. And it really wasn't all that good. But she had a puffy, white hair, frizzy hairdo. And she wore this blue dress with a white puffy frill around it, like what an old lady would wear. And I thought she might be the best thing to translate into a series of movies. And so I started to create some villains uh, and I would have my friends in the neighborhood play these villains. And the number one villain was a guy called The Fiend. And boy, isn't that a creative name. But that's what I thought I was going to do. So with this film camera, I sat down and started drawing out exactly what I could do to make this comic strip come to life. In school, I had a girlfriend. Her name was Maria, and she was this beautiful, tall blonde, and I couldn't believe that she was my girlfriend, and I had discovered the world of girls, very hard-hitting, make-out sessions, the whole thing. I was this little Romeo with Maria, and she hated Spedwoman with a passion. She thought it was offensive. She thought it was stupid. And most convicting, she did not think it was funny. So when she heard that I was going to turn this into a series of films, she really started to lay the uh, the threats down on me. I don't know if I can date a guy that makes this kind of silliness and stupidity. Now, at that time, which was right around eighth grade, I had made my first real feature film on video. 
It was on Umatic video, reel-to-reel tape is what it was, shot on a three-camera system down in the basement of our school. Our middle school had a TV studio, brilliantly built and designed beneath a gym. So you can imagine what the sound was like in that studio. I had always loved Mad Monster Party, the stop-motion animation, uh, 1967 comedy kids film uh, with Boris Karloff and Phyllis Diller and Gail Garnett. I was in love with that movie, always was since a kid. I loved it. I thought I wanted to remake it in eighth grade. And at first, I was going to make it a play, an actual live theatrical play for our school stage. And I had this wonderful teacher. Her name was Donna Haddon. And she became very close to me and pretty much like a second mother to me. And she, I guess, saw my talent, saw something in me, and she encouraged all of this. And she said to me one day while we were walking out on the playground, I took time away from playing with my friends to go over and proposition her because Mrs. Haddon ran what was called an exploratory. At the end of the day, you had a free class called exploratory where teachers basically indulged their own hobbies and shared them with their students. So uh, some of them were model building. Others were uh, radio broadcasting. And Mrs. Haddon's was TV film production. And I thought, I can learn a lot from her. And I pitched her the idea of making Mad Monster Party in the basement, in the studio basement of the school. Now, in seventh grade, I had met her because uh, she had her TV production and she was making an adaptation of Evan Hunter's On the Sidewalk Bleeding, which was pretty racy for 1978-79 in a middle school. Keep in mind, this is middle school. And uh, I was in another exploratory and I was driving this teacher nuts and she brought me and a couple of my friends over to Donna Haddon where she said, you might like this boy. And I joined up on trying to make On the Sidewalk Bleeding, but it crashed and burned for a number of reasons and the film was never completed. So in eighth grade, I knew I would be getting Mrs. Haddon as a teacher. And with that, I brought Mad Monster Party with me. And in addition to that, I had my friend who lived down the road. She transcribed the whole movie into a script. And I had audio recorded the movie on audio cassette. I gave her the cassettes and that entire summer of 1980, she transcribed that movie onto paper, handwritten. And her handwriting looked like type. And she had a full script. So before Sped Woman, there was Mad Monster Party, and I was going to get my friends to be in it. That's your cliffhanger for this first sub-series episode. This is Harrison Smith. I'll be back next week to tell you where it went from there. Thank you for listening, and I hope you are safe wherever in the world you are. Thank you. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.